An analysis article published in the BMJ calls for improvements in the regulation and appraisal of new drugs for type 2 diabetes to ensure that any new treatments really benefit patients. I'm Navjoit Lada, analysis editor, and I'm joined now by three of the authors of the article, Hussein Naji, Ben Goldacre and John Yudkin, to discuss why this is essential and what changes to the regulatory and appraisal process are needed. So first, hello Hussein. Hello. And hi Ben. Hello. And hello, John. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Now, the article describes how the regulatory system falls short when it comes to the approval of type 2 diabetes. So why don't we start with Hussein? Can you tell us what motivated the paper? Um, There are over 30 medications currently on the market for preventing type 2 diabetes or treating type 2 diabetes. And these collectively cost the NHS about a billion pounds every year. And this translates to about a tenth of the entire prescription drug budget for the NHS. And what's really striking about these medications is that we simply lack any definitive information about their long-term effectiveness. So this is really the idea behind the paper. We're asking why this is the case and what we can do to remedy the situation. There are a number of regulatory agencies in the healthcare system, and these agencies serve very much as gatekeepers to the pharmaceutical sector without receiving the green light from agencies like the Food and Drug Administration in the United States or the European Medicines Agency, EMA, within the European Union, pharmaceutical companies cannot market or sell their products in healthcare systems. And what we're talking about in the paper is really the shortcomings of these agencies' regulatory expectations, the evidence expectations of these agencies. And many of these shortcomings, which we'll get on to talking, are relevant to all classes of drugs, really but they are illustrated really well by type 2 diabetes and the kind of specific nature of that condition and how it's managed. Um, So first, John, I was wondering if you could set the scene for us here and tell us a little bit about the kind of management of type 2 diabetes, what guides clinicians and patients and what the goals of treatment are. Diabetes is a curious condition in that mostly... um, it comprises people with type 2 diabetes. 90% of people in the UK with diabetes have got non-insulin dependent or type 2 diabetes. And in almost all cases, that's an asymptomatic condition. So the logic of treating type 2 diabetes is not so much because it's a symptomatic disease. It's really to prevent the long-term complications of that disease. Um, So in a way, Treating type 2 diabetes is not that dissimilar, in my view, from treating a high cholesterol or a high blood pressure. It's largely taking asymptomatic people and intervening around their levels of a risk factor to try and bring them down to target in the hope of preventing long-term complications. Um, Clearly, the variable that's being lowered is blood glucose. The measure that one tends to use in practice is hemoglobin A1c, which gives you an integrated level of blood glucose over two to three months. Now, lowering hemoglobin A1c has been clearly shown to reduce the long-term eye and kidney complications of diabetes, which are very, very unusual compared to the risk of heart attacks and strokes. Now, what's happened is that um, hemoglobin A1c has become all dominant in the thinking of diabetes care. And that's also the case for new drugs that are introduced for diabetes. They're often registered just on the basis of being able to lower hemoglobin A1c. So in terms of the evidence that informs um, 
the our treatment decisions do we know what works for the long-term complications the big trials of glucose lowering have shown that the eye and kidney complications um, can be reduced in risk by glucose lowering but not in terms of patient relevant outcomes blindness and kidney failure there aren't yet any studies that show that people who've been intensively treated to bring their hemoglobin A1c down further have less risk of, of blindness or kidney failure. We tend to depend on the surrogate markers of eye and kidney failure, which is microalbuminuria and background retinopathy. Um, but we're still waiting simply because the studies have been too small. 30,000 people treated for four and a half years is an underpowered meta-analysis to show benefit on the hard endpoints of blindness and kidney failure. So my belief is that by depending on surrogate outcome markers, um, background retinopathy and microalbuminuria, and by depending on surrogate markers of um, control, uh, hemoglobin A1c, one's treating diabetes on the basis of hope um, rather than evidence. So, Hussein, let's talk about the regulatory system um, and some of the um, shortcomings that that you describe in the paper. Um, So there are sort of overall issues and then there are problems that are specific to kind of type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about those? Sure. Um, We identified two key issues with the current regulatory environment. The first is that regulatory agencies at the moment allow pharmaceutical companies to conduct trials clinical investigations on their new medications on the basis of short-term outcomes, such as blood glucose lowering, and uh, and not on the basis of long-term outcomes that are important for patients, such as reductions in the risk of mortality, heart attacks, strokes, amputations, and so on. And the as we write in our paper, it's absolutely wrong, based on empirical evidence, to assume that a drug that effectively lowers the risk, lowers blood glucose levels in the short run, after a few months of taking the medication, would actually successfully lower the risk of important complications associated with diabetes. And yet, regulatory agencies, every time they accept a new diabetes medication to enter the market, this is the exact assumption that they make. So this is the primary, the the first um, shortcoming of the current regulatory environment. The second is the type of individuals that are included in the trials or the clinical investigations of type 2 diabetes medications. And this is really a key point because regulatory agencies, again, allow pharmaceutical companies to do clinical investigations on the types of individuals that are quite different from the types of individuals that are seen in everyday clinical practice. And we have a huge mismatch of the types of populations that are investigated for new type 2 diabetes medications and those who actually end up taking these medications in everyday clinical practice. And um, individuals such as elderly with multiple chronic conditions are the ones who are often excluded from the key investigations of these uh, type 2 diabetes medications. I'm interested in a point that you raised earlier about um, just how big the market is is for these drugs. Um, And what's sort of fueling that it seems like almost part of it is a sort of vicious vicious circle where you know you don't have the evidence that you need and so more drugs come onto the market to perhaps address a gap in 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 there and then you just end up not never getting the 
what you the sort of basic information that you need to know? That's a great question because the bar at the moment is set too low for new medications to enter into the market. Um, it's interesting in recent years to observe that regulatory agencies are increasingly using similar language to pharmaceutical companies and adopting terms like timely market access, which in an ideal world means that regulatory agencies are not standing in between patients reaching innovative, truly meaningful and valuable medications. But what this means in practice is first pharmaceutical companies shortening the amount of time that they spend on testing their new molecules and regulatory agencies actually shortening the amount of that time that they spend on reviewing the applications of those medications. So in the end, uh, it seems to be in recent years that the metric of success for regulatory agencies seems to have shifted from that of improving population health to that of increasing the number of medications available on the market, irrespective of their long-term benefits and harms. And you mentioned harms there, and obviously this is a field where there have been high-profile cases recently. Rosaglitazone was um, withdrawn from the market after serious concerns about its cardiovascular safety. Um, let's talk a little bit about then about what regulatory agencies can do. Then, um, what what would do you suggest? Um, so what we discuss in our paper is really closing the existing loopholes of the regulatory evidence requirements, which would mean that pharmaceutical companies investing in new molecules for type 2 diabetes would be required to conduct larger trials that last longer and include the types of individuals that truly resemble the ones in everyday clinical practice and measure outcomes that are not, that are not only convenient to measure, but also important for patients, these patient important outcomes. Um, John, can I ask you a bit more about patient important outcomes? Do we have any evidence about what what outcomes are important to patients? It's interesting that different patients are going to have different um, hierarchies of um, fear and hope. Um, the concept of disutility um, is that one has a less than perfect quality of life and there's been a huge um, explosion in research on disutilities for things like the Global Burden of Disease study. If you um, look at the literature about how different people uh, would wish to avoid blindness or end-stage kidney failure or heart attack, there's a huge range. Uh, but there's also a huge range of willingness to undertake um, something very simple and preventative. And so a lot of cost-benefit analysis is actually trying to balance up the advantages in terms of the, the condition that's going to be prevented and um, the disadvantage, and in most countries, the cost of the medicine, um, side effects, hassle, having to do injections, having to test your blood sugars um, of the me methods of preventing those endpoints. One has to use averages, um, and this is exactly what the, um, the uh, organizations like NICE do. They look at um, cost-benefit in terms of what the cost of the drug is, what the quality of life is, what the evidence on prevention is, um, and what the unwanted consequences of the drug are. So, for example, um, different diabetes drugs can actually change body weight in an up or down direction. Exenatide is a drug that you give by injection. It makes you um, eat less, it makes you lose weight, and it lowers blood glucose. 
rosiglitazone um, lowers blood glucose, but it increases your weight. Um, and it turns out that in the cost-benefit analysis, patients will ascribe disutility to putting on weight and utility from losing weight that far outweighs um, any uh, utility or disutility from preventing um, a heart attack 10 years from now or blindness uh, in one in 400 people mm. uh, 20 years from now. It's fascinating. I mean, some of the the research that I'm aware of, so study from the Mayo Clinic, which looked at um, what outcomes were important to their patients. And um, I think a large proportion of patients said that their glucose levels or their HbA1c was important. And I mean, I remember hearing someone speak about this and they, they thought that perhaps there's an element of programming that goes on, you know, people saying what they think their doctor wants wants to hear. I don't think it's that. I think um, there's been a very... Uh, the work you're describing is um, has been done by Victor Montori, who's done the most amazing amount of work on patient-centered medicine um, and explaining um, in detail to patients what the expectations are in terms of you and your likelihood of getting benefit as opposed to 100 people in the general population. The diabetes community has picked up from the um, cardiologists the concept of know your number. Know your number in the United States was a campaign by the American Heart Association that everybody should know their cholesterol level uh, and if it was too high that it needed to come down. The idea that hemoglobin A1c is a nice single figure uh, that evaluates how well your diabetes has been controlled over the last two to three months means that you can encapsulate diabetes control in terms of uh, a single number in a way that was impossible to do uh, with home blood glucose monitoring or your clinic blood glucose uh, before um, around 2005 when it became fairly routine uh, to use a hemoglobin A1c in diabetic clinics. So the diabetes community the pharmaceutical industry and the regulators have all adopted the know-your-number attitude to diabetes, uh, that haemoglobin A1c is the all-important thing. And I think that in the context of the consultation, um, what used to be when I started as a consultant, um, the home blood glucose monitoring book brought in with rows and rows of glucose figures and you go through them and um, praise or admonish the patient because they're too high or too low is now being replaced by the patient coming into the clinic a single value if the hemoglobin a1c has come down both sides of the consultation are happy if the hemoglobin a1c has gone up both sides are unhappy if you're not down to target you get told off uh, and you have to go and try harder. Um, so I think that it's um, a focus that is not, you use the word programming, I think it's a, uh, an interesting refocus on what's core to the diabetes agenda. And I think it's a, uh, based on the misconception that your risk of diabetes complications is entirely explicable by your level of hemoglobin A1c. Just like the whole um, cholesterol heart hypothesis was that if your cholesterol was high, you're going to get a heart attack. If we can bring it down, you will not get a heart attack. 
I mean, there's something appealingly simple to that concept, which I I'm, I would love if I were a patient. You know, I, that gives me a job that I can go away and do. But as we know, it's it's big, it's more complicated than that. I think it's also nice if you're a GP and you're being paid cross points. On well, the basis yeah, of <laughs> absolutely. Um, if I could just ask you then, um, in the paper, you propose two strategies to address um, some of the problems you raise. Um, the first of which is aimed at regulatory agencies and the second which is aimed at um, health technology assessment agencies. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you think they should be doing? You want better decisions to be made, decisions that reflect what patients want. And for that you need good evidence and then you need good application of that evidence. At the moment there are really three filters in the system. So one is regulators, and the regulators are answering a very simple question, which is, is there any value in this drug being available at all for any use anywhere? Regulators actually have a fairly low bar, and I think rightly so, because you want to have drugs that are available on the market, even if they are the third, fourth, or fifth best drug in class. Somebody might have an idiosyncratic side effect in response to the best drugs, Somebody might have an idiosyncratic lack of response to the drug that's best for most people and respond particularly well to another. So I think it's firstly important not to imagine for one moment that just because something is legally available for prescription, that necessarily means that it's a drug that is in general worth prescribing. And that's, that's a confusion that I think is in the mind of, of doctors, commentators and patients equally from time to time. The second filter is uh, the health technology appraisal world. So it's, it's, the, it's nice, it's cost effectiveness agencies and ICWIG in Germany who look at the evidence and then try and make a, uh, create a kind of summary view that doctors and health services can use to say, is this stuff in general worth prescribing or not? Now they generally have a rather higher bar for approval and the problem that we've identified that we're concerned about is that the quality of evidence that they have is quite poor, that they're, in the case of diabetes, relying only on surrogate outcome data, looking at HbA1c, rather than real-world outcomes that matter to patients like heart attack, stroke, death, or even eye and kidney problems. So they're relying on weaker forms of data in the first place, but also they're failing to incentivize the creation of better kinds of evidence. Now, NICE has a, an option which they very rarely use, which is to say, we're happy for this product to be approved, but only in research, OIR. Now, that's a very underused option, but it's something which I think collectively we all view as a, as a real opportunity. For example, we could say when presented with a new diabetes drug like exenatide, which has only been shown to change your laboratory blood measures, your HbA1c, and hasn't yet been shown to have an impact on real-world outcomes, we could say, well, actually, we're happy for that to be used, but only in the context of a randomized trial, gathering real-world outcome data, perhaps from electronic health records at very low cost. But I think the real opportunity here going forwards is for people like NICE to say, Actually, we're not happy to accept weaker forms of evidence. If you're coming to us with that, then we're happy to roll that out to the NHS, but only in the context of a robust research program that's going to generate the kind of real-world outcome data that we need. 
So with that, you're addressing um, a number of issues. So, you know, you can do longer term trials, you can um, be more vigilant about safety. Um, the patients that you're applying these to are real world patients who sometimes in very um, in sort of trial populations, you don't get the patients with multimorbidity or older patients. Um, so what are what are some of the barriers to doing this? Well, we've um, conducted two pilot trials to see what happens if you try to run trials such as these at very low cost using routinely collected electronic health record data. Um, and those two trials are reported in uh, the HTA journal. Um, the first and most obvious barrier, the one you'd expect, is ethics committees. So, for example, in a head, head comparison of two statin treatment regimes, we were required to have a very, very long consent conversation between doctor and patient and a very, very long uh, consent form. And, and on that, I would say, I think it's really important that we have good regulation of research, but also we need to view it in the same terms as any other health technology um, or health intervention. So we need to say, well, what's the prevalence of the problem that that kind of governance is trying to fix? What's the evidence that it works? And what's the evidence that it does harm? But there are also various other problems that you come across. And some of these are kind of boring and administrative, but I think they're really important because they prevent us getting better data. So one was, um, quite reasonably, uh, PCTs, now CCGs, said, well, you're proposing to randomize between these two different statin treatment regimes. There's a very tiny difference in cost. It's a matter of pence. But there are excess treatment costs, and those will need to be reimbursed. But equally, I think the opportunities here are absolutely phenomenal because actually we should be creating frameworks within the NHS where we can roll out these new treatments in a way that generates good quality new evidence on how good they are, how cost effective they are, what their safety profile is, and then turn the whole of the NHS really into a machine that tests wherever there's uncertainty, learns from the outcomes of those tests, and then adapts, changes um, the treatments that are being rolled out in response to that evidence. The NHS is an sort of evidence machine with evidence embedded in it. What a, what a lovely idea. <laughs> well, and what a, what a gift to the world, really. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it would create knowledge that, that would generalise to, to other healthcare settings around the world. The argument from drug companies is that this sets sort of unreasonably high hurdles for them. And, and you touch on this in your article. What, what do you, you say to that? I would say that, um, yeah, this is a very commonly heard um, argument from the pharmaceutical industry that um, raising the bar at the time of market entry would, uh, would increase unreasonably the hurdle for market entry for new products. And this, this may actually mean that pharmaceutical companies are disinvesting from potential innovations. However, there is simply no empirical evidence in the literature that would suggest that pharmaceutical companies would disinvest from highly lucrative areas such as type 2 diabetes um, based on evidence requirements increasing by regulatory agencies. In fact, at the moment, there are over 200 molecules in development within the pharmaceutical research and development pipeline. So this is a very dynamic and highly active research and development area. Um, and I would also uh, make the point that um, we need to think about the untenable current situation, which is that there are already 30 medications on the market. Therefore, one would question whether regulatory agencies should continue to tolerate the uncertainty associated with new medications entering the market on the basis of short-term outcomes. 
Right. So it's a very different picture from if you have a perhaps a rare condition where there's only one treatment available. And this, this is a, a different picture. Precisely. Could I pick up on that? I think one of the areas of one of the areas about diabetes that makes it such a an interesting um, condition for pharmaceutical companies is the hugely expanding market possibilities with the growing middle class population, the growing obesity epidemic in uh, emerging economies, um, the 40% of people with diabetes uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean region and the Middle East, the um, epidemic of diabetes in India and China, and the uh, increasing pressure to treat pre-diabetes currently with lifestyle and uh, if that fails with metformin uh, but one uh, finds that there are large numbers of clinical trials going on for treating pre looking at treatment of pre-diabetes with these new agents and one suspects that the 30 percent of people in the UK, US um, 10 to 30 percent in the UK and 50 percent in China with pre-diabetes may all be considered um, a very likely target so I think that the pharmaceutical companies are not going to stop um, investing in uh, glucose lowering medications. Well um, Hussein Naji, Ben Goldhoker and John Yudkin thanks so much for joining us today. Um, and your paper, Rethinking the Appraisal and Approval of Drugs for Type 2 Diabetes, is now available on the bmj.com. <laughs>